Hey everyone, my name is Jessica Ramirez. Welcome to Seedcast, made by Nia Taro, coming to you from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples. We are standing, hear our calling. We are rooted to the ground, we're here to stay. No staying quiet, we stand united. We are Nia Taro is a nonprofit organization. We provide support to indigenous peoples protecting their homelands from colonization and destruction. We share indigenous methods of care for the land with non-indigenous communities. And we support storytellers to elevate indigenous knowledge systems and rights. Seedcast is a platform to introduce to you the lives of indigenous peoples from around the world. As we have been generating ideas about this podcast and its purpose, we have grown to notice the depth of honesty and wisdom that is brought to light through the storytelling process. In most episodes, I would expand and reflect on what you are about to hear. And as someone who is always learning and listening, I actually thought it would be best for us to hear from Senator English and Toholo first. They are elders after all. And indigenous protocols, while they vary across cultures, all share commonality around the wisdom of elders and the importance of transferring knowledge to the younger generations in the hopes of instilling and preserving cultural practices. For this episode, we talk story. Talk story is one of my favorite Pacific Islander terms. It's used when folks get together and hang out, chit chat, often in a circle, many times over a bowl of kava. They rekindle stories, talk about the news, or not. But you get the idea. I've noticed talking story is an important resiliency practice for Pacific Islanders. It was special to bring to the show two Islanders who have a connection, a bond, one of which talking story spans oceans. So get cozy, listen in closely and enjoy the episode. Bula Vinaka, Taholo Kami. I'm coming in from Suva, Fiji, and acknowledge the people of Suva Vo, the traditional landowners of the place I'm in. Thank you. I had the opportunity to meet Taholo for the first time in early February, right before quarantine. He works for Niatero as a senior policy advisor for our work in the Pacific Islands. We were sitting at the same round hotel conference room table for our all staff retreat. He reminded me of someone, someone familiar and familial. His baritone voice commands attention, but not in a harsh way. It's more like you really want to listen to this person. Taholo Kami is a Tongan-born resident of Fiji and was raised in Papua New Guinea. He works on indigenous issues pertaining to climate change across the Pacific Islands. Senator English is one of Taholo's best friends. Aloha, I'm Kalani English. I'm uh, coming to you from the island of Maui in Hawaii. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Aloha. 
Senator Kalani English is a native Hawaiian and the Senate Majority Leader for Hawaii's government. And for anyone who doesn't know him, you could describe him as a cool, laid-back, charismatic leader. He feels on point and buttoned up. But when you talk to him more, you understand that he's a profoundly empathetic and warm person. He's rooted, he's connected to his culture and his land. He calls himself an accidental politician. But what I know for sure is that he is a politician with purpose. Both Senator English and Taholo are policy creators and influencers. Their work involves the oceans and beyond. How has your Pacific Islander identity influenced your work in the political policy realms? And and as someone who is still coming into their own Indigenous identity, I'm Indigenous Latinx, and that's how I identify. My family is from South Texas, but many generations from the border that crossed us. And so in these governments, how do you how do you bring it down a level so that it relates more to your community and into who you're serving? I don't think we bring it down. I think we actually bring it up, right? We're bringing the, the discussion up to everyone. I, I think if for the Pacific now, we're for many countries, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years into their independence or autonomy, self-rule or integration, in the, as in the case of Hawaii. But you know, the idea of the Pacific identity as being Polynesian, Melanesian, or Micronesian, while convenient, it's really a colonial construct. And we are moving more towards the, the notion of Oceania or the greater Pacific and cutting across those cultural divides to understand the commonalities. So how does that translate into government and into working with the different areas? Well, it's very simple. We have to bring it to the table. So I'm very blessed and very honored to have a seat at uh, many tables in the U.S. system and uh, quite a bit in the international system as well. And, you know, always able to bring the notion that Native Hawaiians, and I'm going to speak from this, from this standpoint, Native Hawaiians and the Hawaiian issue is still there. That yes, uh, we, we were politically integrated into the American system, but it doesn't mean that we gave up our Pacific identity nor do we give up our language, our culture, our heritage, nor our background. And we're still alive, thriving, well, and uh, regenerating and generating. So that I always try to bring that to the table and make that the centerpiece of the discussion. So I said, here's what I'm bringing. Here's what comes to the, come to the discussion. And we can have a very in-depth discussion on the implications of the law of the sea or um, highly migratory fish stocks or whatever the issue may be, but this is what I'm bringing with me. Tohalo? You know, the ability to sort of speak as Pacific Island people, as people with these massive ocean heritage, that, um, you know, we're, we're able to speak with, with, with power in many spaces simply by saying in, an, in, in a big discussion that this doesn't apply to us or that we need to rethink the narrative here because it's 
it doesn't it's not inclusive of us and and that's been pretty powerful in the climate change space it's been pretty powerful in the ocean discussions on on global policy we're finding another thing that comes with with the different levels of the role again is that you know living here in Suva we're having discussions on you know impacts and and identity and sometimes I sit in a room here in Suva and I'm looking around and I'm thinking do we really speak for those in the village or the community and you know last week we or a couple of days ago we went into this Talanoa this open discussion and after that we came out and thinking you know the strong advocates in this room even though they look like we all look the same that we're all pretty privileged and that when we talk about identity we're not just talk about village people but we are those of us in town that can talk aggressively on some of these issues can only do do so because of a position of privilege and one of the things that came out of that was suddenly we said you know is there a color to privilege um is it just white privilege or do we have to recognize and challenge all the time you know what does identity mean and it carries across from the village to those in the urban and and the diaspora but identity also we always have to to ensure that that our interpretations of issues on behalf of even our own people are inclusive Yeah, so let's talk about self-determination. What does that look like for you? In Hawaii, it's a very, very charged and complex issue. You know, our, our history is one of, uh, it's a very sad history. Military, U.S. military invasion in 1893, you know, deposed our constitutional monarchy. And a lot of people think that it was a march, you know, to use the, the Western terms, a march forward. But Really, for Hawaii, it was a step backwards. Uh, women had were fully enfranchised. We are a multi-ethnic ethnic society. Many races were citizens of the kingdom uh, with full equality under the law. Women owned their own property. Very, very advanced society. And with the imposition of the American Constitution, for example, the Asian uh, citizens became stateless. So my great-grandfather, I'm part Chinese, my great-grandfather was born in Honolulu in the 1880s was a citizen of the kingdom of Hawaii but then when he became american in 191898 he was stateless so i have his immigration papers saying that he immigrated from honolulu to honolulu and was chinese and had no citizenship so you know you see what happened in the past so that informs us today and today we have people many native hawaiians that are saying wait we lost too much we'd like to return to something that we had others are trying to say let's create something new i think though to sort of speed it up and bring it into where we are right now i think we're rediscussing the whole issue of what is it you know is it um economic sovereignty is it the idea that people can uh survive here and and live uh, a content life in hawaii again how do we how do we do that and how do we balance the what's called the rights of the native tenants so these are reserved rights in our constitution and for the native hawaiians it's you know how do we reestablish uh, some sort of nationhood 
either within or outside of the U.S. system. So it's quite complex here, quite varied, and um, you know you could have days and days of debates on how it should be. But I think the one commonality is that people across the board for or against Hawaiian sovereignty uh, all agree that it has an impact on the, the political, cultural, social, and economic life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Taholo, could you please talk about self-determination and as a Tongan living in Fiji, being a part of the diaspora, I would love to hear a little bit more about what it means for people to be living away from home and staying connected. But how do you see that happening for folks in Fiji? Yeah, look, on on self-determination, it's it's interesting talking. I got asked a couple of days ago, and you know, what does sovereignty mean? And if you asked our politicians, they'd uh, probably say, "Yeah, it's just securing our borders and making sure that we're running our interests." Then someone speaks from Papua New Guinea, and the new prime minister, his whole um, ethos is, "We're taking back PNG," and you know, PNG's been independent for. 45 years this year. And you're thinking, what do you, so you're clawing it back. And the, they're just saying that, you know, we have these incredible resources, but they're not ours. They belong to the big companies overseas um, that we've become dependent, not as independent as we, that our forefathers imagined. And so, you know, when you say self-determination, it has a, 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 I think there's a, a lot of questions starting to come up and say, you know, with the question of sovereignty, are we sovereign just because these big seas, these big, um, these big borders of ocean are ours? Or, and then the question is, is it really ours? And are we benefiting and, uh, from, the, from these resources? Uh, do we have the ability to sustain them or are they being stripped by someone else and other forces? And, you know, COVID has brought that all again into discussions. And um, when suddenly your borders are locked, my wife is still in Tonga uh, for six months now, for example, and she's waiting for the next informal, uh, next formal uh, flight that might come from Fiji, for to come to Fiji. And we're not sure when that is. Huh? But in Tonga, they're really happy. They're just saying like, hey, there's no COVID. They're eating well. The gardens are thriving. There's 3,000 Tongans stuck in New Zealand, and they're still saying, leave them there. New Zealand's got COVID <laughs> <laughs> until they sort that out. Huh? And, um, and that's become the reality in many of the Pacific countries. The Marshall Islands are here. Uh, some of these, they're just basically Hello. the same thing. Is people are happy, um, secure. They just feel insecure if you let your own people in and they bring COVID and we don't have the capacity to manage it. Because of the pandemic, there's this 14-day quarantine happening in Hawaii. And, you know, for many places in the Pacific Islands, people are not even allowed to go back. I remember hearing about the point of which planes couldn't even land from other places. Has this made it more apparent than ever that this kind of sovereignty or the ways that we can just take care of ourselves and our people can exist even more in like a more healthy way without dependence on another place or economy? 
Sure. Well, in Hawaii, you know, we import about 98, 99% of just about everything. And that's built into our political union with, with the United States. So yeah. food, you know, everything you think of is imported. It's forced us to have to deal with our own food security. And is there enough food? Can we grow enough again here in Hawaii? To how do we start looking after each other in different ways? And so I think that if you use the term sovereignty, meaning self-determination for an area, irregardless of race, then I think Hawaii is really rethinking where we're going and how we're going into the future, because we're realizing that we have to do this for ourselves, by ourselves, basically, you know, it's by ourselves. So for example, a lot of people have started farming again, small scale and big scale. I know of one Hawaiian man that has uh, gone back and started raising pigs again. And in Hawaiian culture, pigs are very important. But we, for many years, there are very few people that raise them. So he's raising pigs and doing local distribution. That means people can buy it from him, creating smaller local economies. So I think in many ways, the pandemic has made us, as a society as a whole, right, look at how we move together, forward together as one island. People are starting to realize that there is something special about even in our small states that COVID underlines that is worth securing and keeping. And, you know, people are going into the gardens for the first time in my backyard. First time in 12 years, I've been turning the lawn over and planting and realizing that I should have done this 12 years ago when I bought the place. And, <laughs> and you know, the romanticism is, you know, people, you know, have this thing about going home and, and living off the land like their ancestors did. And then usually they'll go through a lifetime without not being able to do it. And of course, we've got a younger generation where, and the big question as a Tongan, you know, I see it happening all the time with my daughter's generation where there's this huge pride in the re revived again in wearing our taovalas or the, the mats that we wear around our waist. And I remember at their age, I was pretty self-conscious about walking with a taovala and a sulu around Sydney town center and things like that, but not this lot. They're just really proud to be wearing the traditional costume anywhere. And with them, there's this perception that, yeah, you know, one day we'll go home and we'll, we'll plant these crops and we'll live off the land and we'll do the sea, the ocean thing. And, and you know, the, where the romanticism has, has come out, probably being this identity crisis in a sense has been underlined, has been with the voyaging and where everyone realizes that we were part of a heritage of the, you know, it's often referred to as the astronauts of that time that were able to navigate these massive waters of the ocean, Pacific Ocean from uh, across the continents and through these little dots. And suddenly there's this sense that we'd lost everything. And so it's led to this revival. And again, some of it tied, uh, the revival has also strengthened this romanticism of, uh, you know, planting taro is so much part of our roots and eating taro, drinking kava and all of these things. And we're seeing a, like a kava revival amongst young Pacific Islanders all over the diaspora rather than alcohol. And all of this is tied to this sense of, of reconnection. And of course, romanticism, because, you know, how realistic does the reconnection become? 
how are the younger generations being brought into the fold around this? If, if, if you see that at all, or, or what do you wish for younger generations? Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably the challenge of today. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot on what are they learning at schools? What are they learning in homes today? And finding that our younger people, there's a, there is this, uh, with the diaspora, there's this big thing about identity coming back again. You see the pride in wearing traditional costume, the tattoos on, that reflect heritage, etc. But the, the deeper connection to knowing how to live at home, I think the curiosity is there, but it's not the same depth as their parents. If you ask, you know, maybe a large, large proportion of the elderly living in the diaspora, they, would, they just want to go home. Uh, they want to die at home. If it wasn't for their children holding them back or, or medical systems overseas, they'd all be going home and just living in a hut in the village if they could. There's this deep desire to go back home. And we, I'm not sure how instilled that is in many of our young people. And there's a lot of questions being asked. I see it in my own children. You know, I, I, I need to go back home and figure some of this out. And what home looks like, I think, is where that, that gap has created that home, what, the, what they see as home, and then how that ties to identity. Yeah. Uh, you know, just thinking about that question, I'm really excited about the next generation in a lot of ways. There's a romanticism about, you know, with big quotes around this, going back to the village. Uh, in Hawaii, you know, you know, it's it's almost impossible to do because we don't have any real villages left like that. But, I mean, it's hard work. You know, it's really hard work. I mean, raising taro is a romantic notion, but to actually do it means you are doing this every day, all day. And, you know, I can see some of our younger guys uh, doing it, like wanting to do it as a romantic notion. They do it for a little while and they say, okay, I've done it. Now I'm going to go on, you know, back to my, to go back online and get on, get on Zoom and talk to my friends around the world. Right. So it's a, I think that's where the elders, the older people are sort of looking at this. And even for my generation, you know, they looked at it and said, you guys, you know, you need to be dedicated to doing this. So yes, you know, I'm excited because I can, I see the young, younger guys, at least here taking on the roles and trying to do things. And I'm excited because I can see that they're wanting to do things and they're wanting to do it their way. During this whole pandemic, I had to do huge food distributions. We had people with, you know, in Hawaii without food and had to gather lots of amount of food and figure out how to distribute it out into the region. Uh, also, I started putting together food growing programs. And I went to the 20s and 30 year olds and said, all right, I'll provide you with everything you need. You guys help me do this. And they did, you know. I, I like it. I mean, like, like Kalani says, is that it's, I'm hopeful for the future when I see the passion. And I see the passion that in a really distracted time, in a time when you've got so much pointing at everything else, that we have, we've got young people passionate about defining who they are or in, in situations that are not even local. Huh? And I think there's hope that uh, it's appearing in their art, it's appearing in their music, it's appearing in their forums that they're in. 
And I, I think it's uh, the, the future in spite of, you know, some of the pessimis pessimism that comes from the traditionalists. I think the future looks a little brighter with some of the leadership that's emerging. Senator English, thank you so much to Holo. It's always a pleasure. And I know this is just the tip of the iceberg of indigenous Pacific Islander story. And I hope one day we can speak again soon. I know that there is a whole breadth of communities and stories to share. And I just appreciate you too kicking us off and sharing a little bit of your story with us. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our work at Neotero, visit our website, neotero.org. And a big thank you to the Seedcast team, executive producer, Tracy Rector, senior producer, Jenny Asarno, host and co-producer, that's me, Jessica Ramirez, co-producer, Felipe Contreras, edited by Felipe Contreras, social media manager, Hannah Pintaleo, marketing manager, Julie Keck, and theme music by Mia Kami. Subscribe today to catch our next episode of Seedcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. See you soon. Like the wind, we still move. Like the waves, we rise high. Like the sun, we never die. No staying quiet. We stand united.